Chapter Seven of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. A week of heavy reading had passed since the evening he first met Ruth Morse, and still he dared not call. Time and again he nerved himself up to call, but under the doubts that assailed him, his determination died away. He did not know the proper time to call, nor was there any one to tell him and he was afraid of committing himself to an irretrievable blunder. Having shaken himself free from his old companions and old ways of life, and having no new companions, nothing remained for him but to read, and the long hours he devoted to it would have ruined a dozen pair of ordinary eyes. But his eyes were strong, and they were backed by a body superbly strong. Furthermore, his mind was fallow. It had lain fallow all his life, as far as the abstract thought of the books was concerned, and it was ripe for the sowing. It had never been jaded by study, and it bit hold of the knowledge in the books with sharp teeth that would not let go. It seemed to him, by the end of the week, that he had lived centuries, so far behind with the old life and outlook. But he was baffled by lack of preparation. He attempted to read books that required years of preliminary specialization. One day he would read a book of antiquated philosophy, and the next day one that was ultra-modern, so that his head would be whirling with the conflict and contradiction of ideas. It was the same with the economists. On the one shelf at the library he found Karl Marx, Ricardo, Adam Smith, and Mill, and the abstruse formulas of the one gave no clue that the ideas of another were obsolete. He was bewildered, and yet he wanted to know. He had become interested in a day in economics, industry, and politics. Passing through the City Hall Park, he had noticed a group of men, in the center of which were half a dozen, with flushed faces and raised voices, earnestly carrying on a discussion. He joined the listeners, and heard a new, alien tongue in the mouths of the philosophers of the people. One was a tramp, another was a labor agitator, a third was a law school student and the remainder was composed of wordy working men. For the first time he heard of socialism, anarchism, and single tax, and learned that there were warring social philosophies. He heard hundreds of technical words that were new to him, belonging to fields of thought that his meager reading had never touched upon. Because of this he could not follow the arguments closely, and he could only guess at and surmise the ideas wrapped up in such strange expressions. Then there was a black-eyed restaurant waiter, who was a theosophist, a union baker who was an agnostic, an old man who baffled all of them with the strange philosophy that what is is right, and another old man who discoursed interminably about the cosmos and the father Adam and the mother Adam. Martin Eden's head was in a state of addlement when he went away after several hours, and he hurried to the library to look up the definitions of a dozen unusual words. And when he left the library, he carried under his arm four volumes, Madame Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine, Progress and Poverty, The Quintessence of Socialism, and Warfare of Religion and Science. Unfortunately, he began on the Secret Doctrine. Every line bristled with many-syllabled words he did not understand. He sat up in bed, and the dictionary was in front of him more often than the book. 
He looked up so many new words that when they recurred, he had forgotten their meaning and had to look them up again. He devised the plan of writing the definitions in a notebook, and filled page after page with them. And still he could not understand. He read until three in the morning, and his brain was in a turmoil. But not one essential thought in the text had he grasped. He looked up, and it seemed that the room was lifting, healing, and plunging like a ship upon the sea. Then he hurled the secret doctrine and many curses across the room, turned off the gas, and composed himself to sleep. Nor did he have much better luck with the other three books. It was not that his brain was weak or incapable. It could think these thoughts were it not for lack of training in thinking and lack of thought-tools with which to think. He guessed this, and for a while entertained the idea of reading nothing but the dictionary until he had mastered every word in it. Poetry, however, was his solace, and he read much of it, finding his greatest joy in the simpler poets, who were more understandable. He loved beauty, and there he found beauty. Poetry, like music, stirred him profoundly, and, though he did not know it, he was preparing his mind for the heavier work that was to come. The pages of his mind were blank, and, without effort, much he read and liked, stanza by stanza, was impressed upon those pages, so that he was soon able to extract great joy from chanting aloud, or under his breath, the music and the beauty of the printed words he had read. Then he stumbled upon Gailey's classic myths and Bullfinch's Age of Fable, side by side on a library shelf. It was illumination, a great light in the darkness of his ignorance, and he read poetry more avidly than ever. The man at the desk in the library had seen Martin there so often that he became quite cordial, always greeting him with a smile and a nod when he entered. It was because of this that Martin did a daring thing, drawing out some books at the desk, and while the man was stamping the cards, Martin blurted out, Say, there's something I'd like to ask you. The man smiled and paid attention. When you meet a young lady and she asks you to call, how soon can you call? Martin felt his shirt press and cling to his shoulders, what of the sweat of the effort. "'Why, I'd say any time,' the man answered. "'Yes, but this is different,' Martin objected. "'She—I—well, you see, it's this way. Maybe she won't be there. She goes to the university. Then call again.' "'What I said ain't what I meant,' Martin confessed falteringly, while he made up his mind to throw himself wholly upon the other's mercy. I'm just a rough sort of fellow, and I ain't never seen anything of society. This girl is all I ain't, and I ain't anything like she is. You don't think I'm playing the fool, do you?" he demanded abruptly. No, no, not at all, I assure you, the other protested. Your request is not exactly in the scope of the reference department, but I shall be only too pleased to assist you. Martin looked at him admiringly. If I could tear it off that way I'd be all right, he said. I beg pardon? I mean if I could talk easy that way, and polite, and all the rest." "'Oh,' said the other, with comprehension. "'What is the best time to call? The afternoon, not too close to mealtime? Or the evening? Or Sunday?' "'I'll tell you,' the librarian said with a brightening face. "'You call her up on the telephone and find out.' "'I'll do it,' he said, picking up his books and starting away. He turned back and asked. 
When you're speaking to a young lady, say, for instance, Miss Lizzie Smith, do you say Miss Lizzie or Miss Smith? Say Miss Smith, the librarian stated authoritatively. Say Miss Smith always, until you come to know her better. So it was that Martin Eden solved the problem. Come down any time. I'll be at home all afternoon, was Ruth's reply over the telephone to his stammered request as to when he could return the borrowed books. She met him at the door herself, and her woman's eyes took in immediately the creased trousers and the certain slight but indefinable change in him for the better. Also, she was struck by his face. It was almost violent, this health of his, and it seemed to rush out of him and at her in waves of force. She felt the urge again of the desire to lean toward him for warmth, and marveled again at the effect his presence produced upon her. And he, in turn, knew again the swimming sensation of bliss when he felt the contact of her hand in greeting. The difference between them lay in that she was cool and self-possessed, while his face flushed to the roots of the hair. He stumbled with his old awkwardness after her, and his shoulders swung and lurched perilously. Once they were seated in the living room, he began to get on easily, more easily by far than he had expected. She made it easy for him, and the gracious spirit with which she did it made him love her more madly than ever. They talked first of the borrowed books, of the Swinburne he was devoted to, and of the Browning he did not understand. And she led the conversation on from subject to subject, while she pondered the problem of how she could be of help to him. She had thought of this often since their first meeting. She wanted to help him. He made a call upon her pity and tenderness that no one had ever made before, and the pity was not so much derogatory of him as maternal in her. Her pity could not be of the common sort, when the man who drew it was so much man as to shock her with maidenly fears and set her mind and pulse thrilling with strange thoughts and feelings. The old fascination of his neck was there, and there was sweetness in the thought of laying her hands upon it. It seemed still a wanton impulse, but she had grown more used to it. She did not dream that in such guise newborn love would epitomize itself, nor did she dream that the feeling he excited in her was love. She thought she was merely interested in him as an unusual type possessing various potential excellencies, and she even felt philanthropic about it. She did not know she desired him, but with him it was different. He knew that he loved her, and he desired her as he had never before desired anything in his life. He had loved poetry for beauty's sake, and since he met her the gates to the vast field of love poetry had been opened wide. She had given him understanding even more than Bullfinch and Gailey. There was a line that a week before he would not have favored with a second thought, God's own mad lover dying on a kiss. But now it was ever insistent in his mind. He marveled at the wonder of it and the truth, and as he gazed upon her he knew that he could die gladly upon a kiss. He felt God's own mad lover, and no accolade of knighthood could have given him greater pride. And at last he knew the meaning of life and why he was born. As he gazed at her and listened, his thoughts grew daring. He reviewed all the wild delight of the pressure of her hand in his at the door, and longed for it again. 
His gaze wandered often toward her lips, and he yearned for them hungrily. But there was nothing gross or earthly about this yearning. It gave him exquisite delight to watch every movement and play of those lips as they enunciated the words she spoke. Yet they were not ordinary lips, such as all men and women had. Their substance was not mere human clay. They were lips of pure spirit, and his desire for them seemed absolutely different from the desire that had led him to other women's lips. He could kiss her lips, rest his own physical lips upon them, but it would be with the lofty and awful fervor with which one would kiss the robe of God. He was not conscious of this transvaluation of values that had taken place in him, and was unaware that the light that shone in his eyes when he looked at her was quite the same light that shines in all men's eyes when the desire of love is upon them. He did not dream how ardent and masculine his gaze was, nor that the warm flame of it was affecting the alchemy of her spirit. Her penetrative virginity exalted and disguised his own emotions, elevating his thoughts to a star-cool chastity, and he would have been startled to learn that there was that shining out of his eyes like warm waves that flowed through her and kindled a kindred warmth. She was subtly perturbed by it, and more than once, though she knew not why, it disrupted her train of thought with its delicious intrusion, and compelled her to grope for the remainder of ideas partly uttered. Speech was always easy with her, and these interruptions would have puzzled her had she not decided that it was because he was a remarkable type. She was very sensitive to impressions, and it was not strange, after all, that this aura of a traveler from another world should so affect her. The problem in the background of her consciousness was how to help him, and she turned the conversation in that direction, but it was Martin who came to the point first. "'I wonder if I can get some advice from you,' he began, and received an acquiescence of willingness that made his heart bound. "'You remember the other time I was here, and I said I couldn't talk about books and things, because I didn't know how. Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking ever since. I've been to the library a whole lot.' But most of the books I've tackled have been over my head. Maybe I'd better begin at the beginning. I ain't never had no advantages. I've worked pretty hard ever since I was a kid, and since I've been to the library, looking with new eyes at books, and looking at new books, too, I've just about concluded that I ain't been reading the right kind. You know, the books you find in cattle camps and forecastles ain't the same you've got in this house, for instance. Well, that's the sort of reading matter I've been accustomed to. And yet, and I ain't just making a brag of it, I've been different from the people I've herded with. Not that I'm any better than the sailors and cowpunchers I traveled with. I was cowpunching for a short time, you know. But I always liked books. Read everything I could lay hands on, and, well, I guess I think differently from most of them. Now, to come to what I'm driving at, I was never inside a house like this. When I come a week ago and saw all this and you and your mother and brothers and everything, well, I liked it. I'd heard about such things and read about such things in some of the books, and when I looked around at your house, why, the books came true. But the thing I'm after is I liked it. I wanted it. I want it now. I want to breathe air like you get in this house, air that is filled with books and pictures and beautiful things, where people talk in low voices and are clean, and their thoughts are clean. 
The air I always breathed was mixed up with grub and house rent and scrappin' and booze, and that's all they talked about, too. Why, when you was crossin' the room to kiss your mother, I thought it was the most beautiful thing I ever seen. I've seen a whole lot of life, and somehow I've seen a whole lot more of it than most of them that was with me. I like to see, and I want to see more, and I want to see it different. But I ain't got to the point yet. Here it is. I want to make my way to the kind of life you have in this house. There's more in life than booze and hard work and knocking about. Now, how am I going to get it? Where do I take hold and begin? I'm willing to work my passage, you know, and I can make most men sick when it comes to hard work. Once I get started, I'll work day and night. Maybe you think it's funny me asking you about all this. I know you're the last person in the world I ought to ask, but I don't know anybody else I could ask, unless it's Arthur. Maybe I ought to ask him. If I was— His voice died away. His firmly planned intention had come to a halt. On the verge of the horrible probability that he should have asked Arthur, and that he had made a fool of himself. Ruth did not speak immediately. She was too absorbed in striving to reconcile the stumbling, uncouth speech, and its simplicity of thought, with what she saw in his face. She had never looked in eyes that expressed greater power. Here was a man who could do anything, was the message she read there, and it accorded ill with the weakness of his spoken thought. And, for that matter, so complex and quick was her own mind, that she did not have a just appreciation of simplicity. And yet she had caught an impression of power in the very groping of this mind. It had seemed to her like a giant writhing and straining at the bonds that held him down. Her face was all sympathy when she did speak. What you need, you realize yourself, and it is education. You should go back and finish grammar school, and then go through to high school and university. But that takes money he interrupted. Oh! she cried. I had not thought of that. But then you have relatives, somebody who could assist you. He shook his head. My father and mother are dead. I've two sisters, one married, and the other one'll get married soon, I suppose. Then I've a string of brothers. I'm the youngest. But they never help nobody. They've just knocked around the world, looking out for number one. The oldest died in India. Two are in South Africa now and another's on a whaling voyage, and one's traveling with a circus, he does trapeze work. And I guess I'm just like them. I've taken care of myself since I was eleven. That's when my mother died. I've got to study by myself, I guess, and what I want to know is where to begin. I should say the first thing of all would be to get a grammar. Your grammar is, she had intended saying awful, but she amended it to, is not particularly good. He flushed and sweated. I know I must talk a lot of slang and words you don't understand. But then they're the only words I know how to speak. I've got other words in my mind, picked them up from books, but I can't pronounce them, so I don't use them. It isn't what you say, so much as how you say it. You don't mind my being frank, do you? I don't want to hurt you. No, no, he cried, while he secretly blessed her for kindness. Fire away, I've got to know and I'd sooner know from you than from anybody else. Well, then, you say, you was. It should be, you were. You say, I seen, for I saw. You use the double negative. What's the double negative? he demanded, then added humbly. You see, I don't even understand your explanations. 
I'm afraid I didn't explain that, she smiled. A double negative is, let me see, well, you say never help nobody. Never is a negative, nobody is another negative. It is a rule that two negatives make a positive. Never help nobody means that, not helping nobody. They must have helped somebody. That's pretty clear, he said. I never thought of it before. But it don't mean they must have helped somebody, does it? Seems to me that never help nobody just naturally fails to say whether or not they help somebody. I never thought of it before, and I'll never say it again. She was pleased and surprised with the quickness and surety of his mind. As soon as he had got the clue, he not only understood, but corrected her error. You'll find it all in the grammar, she went on. There's something else I noticed in your speech. You say don't when you shouldn't. Don't is a contraction and stands for two words. Do you know them? He thought a moment, then answered, Do not. She nodded her head and said, And you use don't when you mean does not. He was puzzled over this and did not get it so quickly. Give me an illustration, he said. Well, she puckered her brows and pursed up her mouth as she thought, while he looked on and decided that her expression was most adorable. It don't do to be hasty. Change don't to do not, and it reads, it do not do to be hasty, which is perfectly absurd. He turned it over in his mind and considered. Doesn't it jar on your ear? she suggested. Can't say that it does, he replied judicially. Why didn't you say, can't say that it do? she queried. That sounds wrong, he said slowly. As for the other, I can't make up my mind. I guess my ear ain't had the train in yours has. There is no such word as ain't, she said, prettily emphatic. Martin flushed again. And you say been for bean, she continued. Come for came, and the way you chop your endings is something dreadful. How do you mean? He leaned forward, feeling that he ought to get down on his knees before so marvelous a mind. How do I chop? You don't complete the endings. A-N-D spells and... You pronounce it an. I-N-G spells ing. Sometimes you pronounce it ing, and sometimes you leave off the G. And then you slur by dropping initial letters and diphthongs. T-H-E-M spells them. You pronounce it. Oh, well, it is not necessary to go over all of them. What you need is the grammar. I'll get you one, and show you how to begin. As she arose, there shot through his mind something that he had read in the etiquette books, and he stood up awkwardly worrying as to whether he was doing the right thing, and fearing that she might take it as a sign that he was about to go. By the way, Mr. Eden, she called back, as she was leaving the room, what is booze? You used it several times, you know. Oh, booze, he laughed. It's slang. It means whiskey and beer, anything that will make you drunk. And another thing, she laughed back, don't use you when you are impersonal. You is very personal and your use of it just now was not precisely what you meant. I don't see just that. Why, you said just now to me, whiskey and beer, anything that will make you drunk. Make me drunk, don't you see? Well, it would, wouldn't it? Yes, of course, she smiled. But it would be nicer not to bring me into it. Substitute one for you, and see how much better it sounds. When she returned with the grammar, she drew a chair near his. He wondered if he should have helped her with the chair, 
and sat down beside him. She turned the pages of the grammar, and their heads were inclined toward each other. He could hardly follow her outlining of the work he must do. So amazed was he by her delightful propinquity. Just when she began to lay down the importance of conjugation, he forgot all about her. He had never heard of conjugation, and was fascinated by the glimpse he was catching into the tie-ribs of language. He leaned closer to the page, and her hair touched his cheek. He had fainted but once in his life, and he thought he was going to faint again. He could scarcely breathe, and his heart was pounding the blood up into his throat and suffocating him. Never had she seemed so accessible as now. For the moment the great gulf that separated them was bridged. But there was no diminution in the loftiness of his feeling for her. She had not descended to him. It was he who had been caught up into the clouds and carried to her. His reverence for her, in that moment, was of the same order as religious awe and fervor. It seemed to him that he had intruded upon the Holy of Holies, and slowly and carefully he moved his head aside from the contact which thrilled him like an electric shock, and of which she had not been aware. End of chapter 7